Well, hey, it's Ryan from The Art of Paying Attention, where paying attention is our endless and proper work. Well, hey, everybody, so glad to be with you today. We have another fantastic episode for you on the way. Paul Epstein stopped by the show. And Paul is a speaker, he's an author, and he has a fantastic Fantastically intriguing story about building teams, about moving his way up in sports franchises, and you're going to love hearing about his ideas behind culture building and team building and why it's so important. And I was thinking about that today is it's difficult to build teams. It's difficult to lead teams. Uh, I've been doing that for most of my adult life in different ways and different shapes and different sizes and uh and building a healthy culture a healthy team is difficult and i'm really uh excited to share paul's story and how he goes about that and how he thinks about that and why that's essential and uh and and just how do you create a a healthy culture that builds healthy healthy teams to take take you where you want to go wherever that that goal is whatever that uh whatever health looks like for you and your organization, or even if you're a small team, a couple people, two, three, four, five, whatever it is. So look forward to sharing my conversation with Paul Epstein. Well, it's been a a few minutes and uh, so good to be back with you. Um, I've been out of the country uh, this month. I've been sick. I've been away with my wife. We've done a lot of stuff and uh, all good things, not the sickness part, but um, but yeah, it's good to be back back in action and uh, been a little quiet on the Substack if you've been following along. So uh, we'll be having some new stuff coming out pretty soon here. But uh, yeah, just uh, wasn't able to get to that uh, with a lot going on. Um, but I'm excited to share this episode, this interview. Uh, there'll be another newsletter coming out soon. So um, I send out uh, typically weekly newsletters, uh, seven things I'm paying attention to at seven o'clock. PM, uh, so you can get on the newsletter and stay apprised on all that's going on and uh, send out updates and other cool stuff. So check that on out. And uh, thanks for coming along. Thanks for paying attention. Uh, thanks for giving me your attention. And uh, we are going to get right to my conversation with Paul Epstein. Well, Paul, uh, good to have you on the show. Now, this is the art of paying attention. So I do have to ask you, what are you paying attention to these days? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me in this moment. And I said, this conversation, I'm very <laughs> present. Uh, what am I paying attention to? Well, this year, my theme based on reading the book Essentialism late last year was uh, keep my attention on the things that are needle movers, that are game changers, that are essential not just to my business, but to my life. Um, It's been the healthiest year I've had. It's the most productive year I've had. It's been the most purposeful year I've had, but that's because I've kept the main thing, the main thing. And we could definitely unpack that more. But what's really, really not only keeping me up at night, but is keeping my attention is at the time we're recording this, um, within a month of a book launch and it's my second book. And so, you know, normally I stay out of the weeds and I stay out of the details, but in this case, like I'm fully just locked in on the trenches and, uh, it's, uh, it's a full gauntlet of emotions, but I'm embracing it all. Well, great. I love that. So I, I think, you know, what you're saying too, is kind of a little bit of the heart of the show and, and kind of what do we pay attention to? What's most important? What keeps us focused on, like you said, the main, keeping the main thing, the main thing, whether that's life or art or business yeah. or writing a book. Uh, well, let's, let's, 
let's back up a little bit just because I think sure. writing, writing a book is a great accomplishment. I know you've written another one uh, before, uh, and I know you do speaking and coaching and all kinds of things. Uh, tell us a little bit about like, what is your experience of writing a book? Like how do when you go into it, I mean, is it, is it full confidence? Is it dread? Is it, how are we ever <laughs> going to get this thing done? I mean, you, you spoke to these emotions, you yeah. know, like I'm fully locked in, but you know, who knows? I don't know. This, this thing's crazy, but yeah. Talk us through that. Oh, Ryan, it's been a total roller coaster. I'll share a bit about my personal experience. And then I'll also share how I coach other authors, especially first time authors, because I feel like there's this evolution of how I've grown from not knowing what the heck I was doing to now I'm pretty damn confident about my process. And so I'll go back. I wrote my first book in an unexpected time. I went all in on speaking within a few years prior, really a couple months prior. I was speaking for decades as a part of the day job, but then solopreneur, keynote speaker. I mean, we're talking January, 2020, when I detached from any entity and became that kind of all, all in speaker. And I share that because it's an important piece that I never would have written my first book in the time frame that I did or when I did, if it wasn't for this thing that happened in March of 2020. So we all know what I'm talking about. Stages go away, events go away, COVID and the shutdowns and all that. And all of a sudden, you know, look, the first week or two suck and you kind of put your life back together. And for me, there was lost stages, lost impact, lost revenue, lost all of that. But then I flipped it on its head and asked myself, well, if I lost things, then that means I gained things. What did I gain? And the biggest thing was time. And so with time, I looked at my mid to long-term goals and objectives and big rocks, one of which was writing a book. And all of a sudden I said, I think this just created the perfect amount of time for me to prioritize this because other things were taken away. So now let me put this to the top of the list. And I literally, Ryan, wrote a 300 plus page leadership playbook of all of my insights from a decade and a half in the professional sports industry, NFL, NBA teams, and beyond. And I did it all in 90 days. In 90 days, I cranked it all out, which is, again, the power of what's essential, what you pay attention to, what you focus on. And that was my process. But the evolution was, I was playing a very sloppy game of checkers my first time. I'll give you a few examples. Thousands of people order the book on Amazon, and I'm blessed and I'm grateful it became a national number one bestseller. Well, I don't know who many of those thousands are, and that was a mistake. I now know that if you want to keep a journey going with a reader, a listener, an audience, a community, a tribe, whatever it is that you're doing, we got to be able to connect. And unless people find me, I got to be able to find them. And so with my second book, that was just an example of what I'll call chess versus checkers. You know, but I, I think part of your question too is the emotional side of it, because that's maybe more strategy and process, which is very important. But the emotions are every single day is different. The only thing that authors have in common is bad first drafts. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, there's some days that you are in flow and you are just 
juiced up and it's like I could not write anything terrible even if I tried. And then you think you have momentum and sometimes the following day, you're internally asking yourself, who's going to care? Who's going to read this? Am I wasting my time? Maybe I am wasting my time. This is stupid. How much time have I already wasted on this? And then the next day you go back to feeling amazing. And I'm not saying it's a one day, one day back and forth tennis match, but I'm telling you, it ain't that far from it. I've had amazing days. I've had horrible days. And I've learned to power through the bad days because there's two thought processes. One is you just abandon that day's work and you just say, today's not my day. The other day or the other approach is, which is my approach, you power through. And if you set aside two hours to write that morning or that day, write for two hours, even if it's dog poop, because you might write something that inspires a different idea, a different piece of content. Maybe whatever you wrote doesn't end up in your book, but it triggers something that could become a blog post. You could speak to it in social media. You could film an organic video. I could insert it into a keynote of mine. And maybe it's a story of how you overcome days that suck. And that's why I went through it. But it wouldn't have sucked if I would have said, oh, it's been a bad five minutes. Let me walk away. That doesn't suck enough for me to create an example out of that. So I think there's a little bit of that process. And um, you know, before I kick it back to you, because I know I've just unpacked a lot, I think that's the emotional side where I've landed now after writing my second book is there's a clear cut process on how you set a book up. And people think that writing it is the hard part. I don't think writing it is the hard part. I think in the football field analogy, if there's a hundred yards in a field, I think you go 50 of the hundred yards before you even write a chapter. And that first 50 yards, there's a lot of self-discovery. There's an assessment of what problem do I solve? Why me? Why am I credible to write on that? What are the transformations, the promises, the payoffs that I deliver for other people? Why should people care? Besides my friends and family, like why should people give a damn in the words of my publisher? I think that's a very important thing. And I'm not even focused on sales and marketing yet. But then you do the self-discovery, you do the work on the problem, the credibility, the transformation, what's that big idea? You study the market in terms of comps, and then you put an outline together. And to me, the outline, that's the heaviest lift. So when I do a 90-day coaching program, I just describe to you in the last 90 seconds what I do in those 90 days for others, because here's my fear. I think so many people in the world have a book inside of them and they don't know where to start. And if they don't know where to start, they'll lack the confidence to ever take the first step. So I inspire confidence to take that first step based on what's been proven to work for me from a very sloppy first book setup to now a very sophisticated second book setup because I just want to max impact and help people's lives. And my thought is you're going to help a lot more lives if you go through the right process. Well, that's really good. I, I think you... Uh... I'm thankful for you just kind of naming what I think most writers, people creating anything feel that, that emotional, why am I doing this? This yeah. is the worst thing ever. I mean, it could be writing. It could be starting a business. It could be anything. Yeah. Why, 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 why did I get up this morning? Um, and, and I think that's, <laughs> and, and I think there's a, there's a reality of 
even if you're experienced at it, even if you've done it a bunch of times, there's still that kind of imposter syndrome. There's still that hundred percent days where you just feel off and just feel like, oh my gosh, like seriously, I need to find a different job and, and do a different thing. Right. Um, so they just thank you for naming that. Cause I think a lot of people are going to hear that and go, oh good. I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> oh good. I've felt that many times over and that's why I quit. Or that's why I've been working on the same book for 15 years and haven't got it done, you know, um, for whatever yeah. reason. Um, but no, I appreciate that. So so Paul, let's uh let's throw it in reverse just a little bit because obviously you're you've been working with you know high performance teams, professional teams, uh companies, you've been writing, speaking, all of that. But like let's let's back it up a little bit and just say kind of what is the the Paul kind of origin story? You know, everybody has an origin story. I mean, what kind of led you into this kind of work, this idea of like, hey, I want to speak, I want to help people, I want to write, I got something to say. I mean, go back like early influences, family, education, experiences, like what, what kind of led you into this, this path? Yeah, this is, it's one of the more emotional, but important parts of my origin and my backstory. And it comes back to the thing that gets me out of bed and my strongest core value is impact. Impact is making a difference. The way I measure my impact is, did I leave people in places better than I found them? And the reason impact is my strongest core value is my dad. My dad is my hero and I lost my hero mm. at 19 years old. By trade, he was a continuation high school teacher. So a lot of folks might not be familiar with continuation. The quick and dirty is it's a kid's last chance. They've been kicked out of traditional school time and time again. They landed a continuation and there's no next stop. If they don't make it through continuation, they're likely a statistic on the street. And that's the harsh reality. And that's the environment that my dad chose after years of teaching in traditional schools. He felt he could make a greater impact in continuation. Years after he passes, I'm at a barber shop a few blocks away from the school that he taught at. And in walks in this seven foot tall, bulging body, tattoos all over, and even tattoos on his face, like a scary looking dude. Somebody that if you saw in a dark alley, you would run the other way. And he and I lock eyes and he's coming right at me. And I see his hand go up. <laughs> so I'm bracing for impact. And I finally opened my eyes expecting to see a fist, but instead I saw a finger a finger that was pointing at me. And he asked, are you Mr. Epstein's son? I said, yeah. He goes, I thought it was you. You look familiar. You were like this tall on the side of the stage that I graduated from. And anyways, I, I just wanted to come over and say, thank you. Thank you. Because your dad was the first person that ever believed in me. Thank you. Your dad gave me a reason to think that tomorrow was worth it. And Ryan, I, I didn't know that there's people around us every day that don't feel that tomorrow's worth it. So in this moment, I learned what the real definition of leadership is. I learned the impact that's possible when you pour yourself into somebody, when you genuinely leave them better than you found them. And if I could have one-tenth of the impact that my dad had, then it'll be a great life. 
And now as I speak all over the world and I write books, hopefully multiple bestsellers and all this stuff, they're, they're just trophies, man. Like it's, it's good. That's success. I care so much more about significance. I, I consider my dad's legacy has become my purpose. When I walk off stage, if you would have asked me years ago, hey, how'd you do? I would have responded with something performance-based or did I get a standing ovation or whatever metric or validation that it is. Now I literally am so grounded that I ask myself, did I make my dad proud? Based on how I showed up today, did I make him proud? And if the answer is yes, I would do it every day in my life. That's my measurement of success and significance and purpose and impact and legacy. And so I literally can't lose now. If I'm making him proud, I cannot lose. And you asked for my origin story. That's the through line. The through line is I only do things that can create more impact, that can better people's lives. My dad chose a classroom. I then chose a boardroom. Now I choose a stage. But we have the same spirit about us. We just want to help people get better. In my speaking, that's helping CEOs, culture champions, high performers, high achievers. Awesome. In other things that I do, like writing books, now it gets down to a more individual level, and that's to inspire people with greater confidence and clarity and help them overcome the hurdles of things like decision fatigue and decision overwhelm and paralysis and indecision and not being comfortable with imperfect action. All these things, that's the spirit of it. We can put fancy wrappers and packages on it. And as an artist, I think that's important. But what's the essence of your art, of your spoken word, of your written word, of your canvas? And that's really what I want to focus on. And without my dad, I definitely wouldn't have this lens or perspective. Well, thanks for sharing that. I know that's, you know, sorry about your loss too. Um, but yeah, th there's always this kind of through line of like what, you know, what, what, what allows us to, or keeps us going on those hard days, you know, to have that yeah. kind of that, you know, some, I know it's become cliche, but you know, the why, you know, what, why do I get up in the morning? Why do I write? Sure. Why do I speak? Why do I, you know, but yeah, that's, I love that. And, and I think it's also just a reminder too, like, it doesn't matter if you're in the classroom or on a stage or teaching kids or taking care of kids or what, whatever it may be, like you can have an impact. Like that's the, I think that's the through line too, what I hear you saying. It's, it's not about, you know, how much, you know, influence you have or how big your company is, but to say, Hey, there's these different areas of culture and influence that we can have. And, um, yeah, no, I, I love that. So, um, yeah, so, and, and Ryan, yeah, sorry, ahead. sorry. I want to jump in one thing. Cause I, I feel like this one point can impact so many people listening to this. There's a couple of, of things to unpack. They're fast. This one gentleman that I was scared of in the barbershop. Moments later, he felt like an angel delivering a message. And here's my thing. Had he not said what he said to me, then I'm not sharing this story with you, with all your listeners from stages all over the globe. Think about that. My dad, who's one person, impacted many lives, but this one gentleman in particular, this one gentleman comes up to me, opens up, tells me what he needs to tell me, what he wants to tell me, and he might impact millions of lives because of that. 
So there is no act that's too small. It's not, oh, well, I just helped one person. There is no just. You might not ever know the ripple effect or the dominoes, but think about this one story and you can do one small thing and don't keep score. Because if I was only being kind or compassionate because I thought, well, this is going to change a life or change the world, then I'd be doing it probably with the wrong intention. I just need to do it. And I need to do it consistently. And if I need to create process to do it, here's the process that I share with people. After I tell the story of my dad, I say, okay, you just heard a story of my hero. Who's your hero? Who's the person you would do anything for? Maybe they're still with you. Maybe they're with you in memory, like my dad is with me. Who is that person? And dedicate the rest of this year to that person. Because here's what I know to be true. You will let yourself down before you let the most important person in your life down. So by externally dedicating this year, you literally cannot lose. And so I, I wanted to share that with everybody because you have that person, dead or alive, you have that person. And when you dedicate this year to them, this day to them, this week to them, this month to them, it just sets you up for a more proud, winning mindset because all you're trying to do is make them proud. That's it. Love that. Love it. So um, obviously saw your dad impact a lot of people. You said, this is what I want to do. Uh, I mean, what happens next? I mean, obviously, you know, the next day you're just on a stage, you know, you met this guy in the barbershop and you're just speaking to millions of people around the world, wrote a book. No, but what, <laughs> I know that's not how it went, but um, yeah. So what was kind of the, the path into, you know, working with professional sports teams and yeah. helping, you know, I, I love, uh, we'll get into it in just a minute, but as far as like culture, like how do we build healthy culture, oh, high yeah. performing teams? Like uh, we'll talk a little about your book too, but yeah, go, go into that a little bit. Just kind of what was kind of the, the seed into that? For sure. So at the time that the barbershop story took place, I was probably uh, three, four years into my 15 years eventually in the sports industry. And so the way I broke in is kind of a cool backstory here. So uh, even if you're not a sports fan, there's a guy named Mel Kuyper that is an NFL draft guru. So basically, he's an NFL and college football expert. He starts studying kids in junior high and kind of forecasts whether they're going to, are they going to get drafted in the first round, the second round, the third round? And he studies these, these kids for years, which is great. So Mel has a very high energy voice like this, like he talks and it's just like super passion, 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 fire, fire, fire. He comes on ESPN radio as I've got my first job out of undergrad. I worked for a Fortune 10 company as an outside territory sales manager. So I'm driving a very cool, sporty Dodge Caravan. So here I am in the minivan and uh, I'm cruising from one retail account to a wholesale account and back to another. ESPN radio is on, of course, me being a sports fan. Mel comes on. Have you ever wanted to work in sports? Have you ever dreamed of working for your favorite MLB, NFL? And yes, yes, yes. I'm just screaming down the highway, just hitting the gas. Thankfully, no cops were around. <laughs> and he says, call 1-800-SMWW now. I called Sports Management Worldwide, took their eight-week online course. The instructors were so thrilled and, hey, how can we help you? I said, I want to sell. I'm in LA. Who do you know? They said, we know the folks at the Staples Center. All right. This was circa 2005 at a time where Kobe and Shaq were winning championships with the Lakers. 
So I thought as a proud born and raised Angelino, this is awesome. I'm going to be hanging out with Jack Nicholson and the Laker girls and Kobe and Shaq and the whole thing. But a few problems. One is, never got to meet Jack. The other is, Kobe and Shaq were in the building, but they were on the other side of the hallway because I never quite worked for the Lakers. I got the introduction to the other team, the Clippers, the redheaded stepchild of the building. I'm an entry-level sales guy. A year before I start, ESPN says you're the worst brand in sports. Second week on the job. Can't even make this up if I wanted to. Second week on the job. Front cover of Sports Illustrated. Worst franchise in sports history. (laughs) They've got three Clipper fans, all with paper bags over their head. One that says, just shoot me. And I got to sell that. To top it off, that's the Fortune 10 job that I had. At goal, paid six figures. And I left those six figures to make seven dollars an hour. That's how I broke into sports, selling Clipper tickets for seven dollars an hour. And it taught me to this day, and this is what I keynote about all the time. This is part of the early days of what inspired the later book that became The Power of Playing Offense. This chapter at the Clippers taught me everything I need to know about how do you play offense in a defensive environment. Everyone listening in has defense in their lives. Typically circumstantial, environmental, we could categorize it as adversity, setbacks, hurdles, obstacles, the economy, the pandemic, defense, negative people around you, defense, How do you play offense in a defensive environment? And through this hyper obsession with controlling controllables like work ethic and positivity and coachability and my daily scorecard being experience, information, and relationships, like I I really drilled in at that foundational level. And that's what led me to thrive as a seller, eventually as a sales manager, which is when that barbershop story happened. So to learn a leadership lesson at that stage of my career was epic. Then- I get on this magic carpet ride for 15 years. I went to New Orleans, but bang, another fire. We had to save the team from permanent relocation. Then I go to the Sacramento Kings. Paul, you're in charge of company culture. Bang, league-wide labor lockout. Just tests of how do you play offense and endure defensive environments. Then I had a chapter at the NFL League office where we broke some Super Bowl revenue records. That was pretty awesome. I don't have adversity there other than expectations. It was a 400% goal year over year because the game was in New York. So it was just kind of this climb Mount Everest and nobody's ever climbed half of that peak and you got to be the first. And that's what it felt like. So that was defense in a different way. And then I get to the Niners where I spent my last handful of years in the industry. I'm head of revenue, sales team, service team. Most days, pretty predictable, high-flying, high-charging, high-performing. We could talk all about culture through this conversation, no doubt. But a couple of years into my experience at the Niners, the world paid attention way bigger than sports when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. Hmm. And so every relationship with customers that we managed and that we serviced and that we sold into the building, we had to face them when they were saying things like, cut them from the team or we're out. And that's a whole nother story. But again, that's defense. It's uncontrollable. 
How do you play offense in a defensive environment? And that was my 15 year run inside of the sports industry. Nice. Well, there was a reason I knew I, I wanted you on the show and I didn't know this before, but I'm a, I'm a Los Angeles guy, by the way. Yeah. Great. Grew up, grew up here and you're going to say really horrible things about my Clippers, um, lifetime Clipper fan. Uh, and yeah, well, that was a good challenge. Cause that, that was actually my big question is how do you turn the Clippers around? That's actually what I wanted to spend. Well, most, and now, most now they're time. in a, yeah, now they're <laughs> in a healthier state yes. and now they're, they're yes. winning more games and former owner is gone, which was part of the Bro. toxicity, you know, but, but yes, I mean, there's, well, yeah, we should have an adult, adult beverage and chat about the Clippers yeah, at another time. <laughs> for sure. Well, and I think that's a you know great example too of like, you know, an organization that obviously when you came on was not in a good spot and yeah. culture has certainly changed there. And I, you know, I'm I'm actually living in Kansas City now and you know, the the Chiefs organization is just a healthier place. And you just phenomenal see kind of the there's like these intangible things and and you've obviously witnessed that and and there's a lot of things that obviously out of your control. You can't control external things. Um, but you know. What one of the questions I had too was just as you've kind of gone to these different teams and different organizations and um, how do you what I should say it this way what is the metric for what you would call like high performing teams like when you when you say like this is the kind of team we're after or this is the kind of culture we're after I mean there are certain things that you've kind of learned along the way that you can kind of point to and go kind of looks like this or it feels like this because culture is a hard thing to kind of define it's like you kind of know when you see it. But what are are there like tangible things that you go like yeah this is this is healthy this is good this is not yeah I'll, I'll hit this from two different angles and I've already mentioned one of them so I'll be quicker with it but at the end of the day a culture has to have an identity and it can't be fluff like you got to get down to what does this look like and feel like act like and behave like and decide like on a day-to-day -day basis. Like if I cannot see how you think your culture should be, if I don't feel it, then it just doesn't matter. In other words, if it's not behavioral, it doesn't matter. If it's not influenced by your decisions, it doesn't matter. If it's not consistent, it doesn't matter. If it's not based on actions, it doesn't matter. So we have to like, let's stop talking about all these North stars and all this, hey, here's our greater mission. Your mission is not your culture. Your culture is when I get off the elevator, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How are people treating each other? How do people talk about you behind closed doors? How will people talk about you five years after they've gone from the organization? That's the culture. So a couple of things. One is lock in on controllables. So don't tell me a culture is all these altruistic, ambitious things. Who are you? What do you want to pride yourself on? At the Clippers in our sales team, it was work ethic, positivity, coachability. Those were non-negotiable. I always told people, I will give you more than enough strikes before you're ever out for revenue performance if you're doing those three things. You're working your tail off. You have an infectious, positive attitude, and it, you're going to be coachable. You're committed to 1% better every day. All right. It was a bad month. Cool. You coachable? Because if you have bad months, bad days, bad weeks, and you're not coachable, you're out of here. Like there, it, This is a dead end. Right. And so for me, like culture has to get very simple to understand. And then I would make it granular enough to get it behavioral. What is, what do I mean by work ethic? Let's spell that out. What do I mean by positivity? Give me some examples. What do I mean by coachability? Because people don't respond to words, they respond to behaviors and actions. You've got to tell people these are our standards and standards beat goals. The best cultures in the world, they have standards. We could call them values. 
that's fine. But if I don't know how to show up behaviorally to that standard, then it's not going to scale well. Once your team outgrows the size of a table, once you have two locations, once you're a global entity, good luck with culture. Another example I'll share with you is I did consulting with one of the top airlines in the US. They have 120,000 employees and they have 6,000 positional leaders. So I did training workshops with all the leaders, 50 people, 7,500. It took years to go through a couple rounds with the 6,000. And people ask me all the time, so what was the culture of the airline like? I say, well, I can't answer that. Who's the leader? What department? What location? What floor of the building? That's the culture. Because when I would visit headquarters, floor five, they were high five and floor six, shh, watch out, boss is around the corner. <laughs> and Ryan, you know what's crazy? Floor five and six weren't just the same airline or same company. Floor five and six were the same department. Drastically different mm -hmm. weather system. So every single culture has infinite microclimates. Each person with their own weather system. So I'm not a culture is top down guy. I believe all culture is local hmm. down to the person. So when Ryan walks in a room, when Paul walks in a room, when Ryan hops on a Zoom, when Paul hops into a Zoom, we have two choices. We either warm it up or we cool it off. The question is, are we aware of our own temperature? Hmm. I like that. That's how culture scales. When people own their temperature, now they own their weather system. They own their local culture. And when the people to their left and right do the same thing, that is not only a culture that wins, it's a culture that scales. That's really helpful. No, I think that's good because I think there, there's a, I think more conversations now about culture than any, any time that I've been around, as opposed to like kind of what you're saying, like these, you know, rules or regulations or da 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 da, -da top down stuff. It's more, you know, if you don't have the culture, good luck. I mean, you're a sports guy, obviously. Yeah. The, these That's all it is. Yeah. These organizations that are terrible, it's not because they don't have LeBron James on the team. It's because their culture is terrible. It's toxic, you know, and, and they yeah. don't have the success, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, you do need players. Yes. But like, how does a culture attract, you know, the right players and the right mindset and the right, you know, acumen and all that? Um, I yeah. Mean, talk, talk about the Patriots for, you know, 20 years. It's like, I mean, yeah, the culture is pretty tough, but like, it's a winning but they culture. had a culture yeah. and a culture is an identity. And yep. they Bill Belichick said, do your job. And here's right. what do your job looks like. Right. Now that he might not be the style of coach for you, that's right. fine. Right. But he had a style and it was authentic. And if you bought in, they had a culture. Here's the one thing I'll share about sports. So super quick. This is the top 0.01% of people in the world at what they do. And that's not true for business, right? I can't just drop into a company and be like, oh, you're in the top 1% of accountants in the world. You're the top marketer. <laughs> in the Sometimes, but it's mm -hmm. luck. It's rare. But in professional sports, there is a selection process where we are literally like the best high schoolers, the best college, the best pro. I mean, there is a selection process. And if you're not the top 0.1%, you'll get weeded out. Cool. It's all performance-based. Now- if that's the case, there's no locker room in pro sports that is short on gifts, talents, abilities, or skills. 
So then why do some teams consistently play horrible? Why do some teams play great on Tuesday and drastically <laughs> they, they fail on Wednesday? And you ask yourself, A, I think there's culture gap, but I also think it's a confidence gap. It's a confidence gap. You know, like I, I think of the sooner that you can un wind what's already happened and not get just drawn into and dragged into the negativity if something didn't go your way. That's why athletes, when I coach professional athletes, that's the number one thing. It's they're stuck in the rear view mirror. So when a baseball player has been in a slump, they're thinking about the slump. You need to erase that whiteboard and start over and hit reset. And that's not easy to do. That's why people hire coaches and you know folks like me and beyond. But like at the end of the day, this is a confidence game. And my formula for confidence is confidence equals values times action. The multiplication is how consistently you do it. And what I've seen from not only elite performers, those that sustain performance, don't tell me you're going to win a game. Maybe you win a championship. Can you repeat as a champion is a true test? It's those that consistently put their values in action. Those are the people with unshakable confidence the challenge is most people don't know their values or their words on a wall, but they don't take action on them and they definitely don't do it consistently. So when I speak all over the world about closing confidence gaps, if you cut to the chase, I empower people to know their values, take consistent action on those values, and the output is unshakable confidence. That's great. So- to segue into, I think it's actually a really relevant uh, conversation when you think of your new book and making decisions. And I, I think I, I was reading somewhere, the average adult makes 35,000 decisions. Oh a day. man. Is that, that I read, crazy? Yeah. When I read that, I was like, I'm already anxious and overwhelmed. Like, that's, <laughs> So yep. um, so obviously I think on this culture conversation, leadership conversation, high performer conversation, there's daily decisions. There's daily actions. I mean, you mentioned this just a minute ago. Um talk a little bit about kind of the, the origin of the book. Like what was the thing you were seeing, the the problem you're trying to solve? Like how did this book kind of start metastasizing, if you will, into the world? Like where did it all begin? Before I answer this, I, that is a new word for me. What did you just say? Meta me metastasizing. Met yeah. It's like what does when, that mean? I, like I want to be the student here. Wait, <laughs> right. what, the, what the heck did you just say? That's well, awesome. <laughs> so my, my wife's actually a cancer nurse and it's actually a, it's like when a cancer cell kind of grows, it metastasizes. Ah. Yeah. It gets bigger and bigger. It starts real okay. small and just kind of grows and grows. Now I understand the, con okay. Thank right. you. All right. All right. So the origin of better decisions faster and no shock. We just spoke about confidence. The subtitle is unshakable confidence when you need it most. Hmm. That's the setup. Life is a game of decisions and actions, but whether we decide or act, or excuse me, whether we act or not is a decision in and of itself. So decisions are the lowest common denominator. And so far, when I tell people this, they track it. Paul, I'm following you. And I say, all right, well, yeah, let's audit your past. Health, relationships, career choices, financial decisions, partnerships, investments. I mean, the list goes on. Show me the quality of those decisions I'll show you the quality of your life. And most people, you know, it's kind of a sobering audit. They're like, yeah, I, I, I follow, man. I agree. All right. So then I ask, 
So what's your process? If decisions are so valuable and so consequential, what's your system? What's your process? And I normally get blank stares or I get some level of gut, impulse, risk versus reward, logic versus emotion. And then I say, all right, and you're doing that for all your big decisions. You're going through the same consistent process. Well, no, I guess when it's, when I have time, you know, so the scary part is nobody debates how important decisions are. It literally dictates the quality of your life for better or worse, but nobody had a process. Nobody had a system. So then all these pain points evolve over the years. If you're in a leadership role, decision fatigue and decision overwhelm, massive, the number of decisions you have to make in a day. Then for everyday individuals, we freeze, we get paralyzed. That's where things like paralysis analysis have come from. And what that leads to is the worst possible decision of them all, which is indecision, when we do nothing. And it's because this overwhelming sense of stress and anxiety or lack of confidence at these critical forks in the road, it makes us freeze. So it's all very human and very natural. So that was the problem. And that was when I realized, okay, hold on. The quality of life is driven by the quality of decisions. Most people don't have a go-to process or system. Ah, I'm going to create it. I'm going to take a look in the mirror because this has been years in the making. I'm going to audit my own past. Great decisions, horrible decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, okay decisions, decisions that ended up biting me in the you-know-what, decisions that ended up being surprise, great news and lights at the end of the tunnel. Like, Let me audit everything, and then let me integrate it into my coaching practice, my consulting practice, my training practice. Let me host a podcast where we really dive into some of these insights, and years later, you land on this beautiful place of, I've got it. I have a through line. The themes have emerged. And here's what the process is. This is how we make better decisions faster. I call it the head, heart, hands equation. Head is your mindset. Heart is your authenticity. Hands are action. The equation is head plus heart equals hands, meaning when deciding whether to take action, whether to use your hands, there's two checkpoints, head and heart. Head, do I think it's a good idea? Heart, do I feel it's a good idea. And just like a traffic signal, when they're both on board, head and heart, that's a green light. You pursue it, you attack it, you want more of it. On the flip side, now that you're aware of no head, no heart, that's a red light, you stop running reds. And then where a lot of business and life lie is this messy middle of yellow. And so I wrote the book to fill our life with more greens. I wrote the book to stop running reds. And I wrote the book to have the confidence to navigate and conquer the messy middle of yellow. Hmm. I like that. So how do you, what's the, um, you know, when you think about, I like that, that formula of head, heart, hands. Um, I've used that actually in different contexts, but great. Um, how do you know that you can trust the head and the heart? In, in other words, you know, there's these moments where, you know, something comes before you and it's like, Hey, we want you to do this, or here's an investment opportunity or whatever it may be. And how do you know your head and your heart aren't betraying you? I mean, is there a way that you've kind of thought <laughs> through that? Like, cause I know I've, I've thought, you know, this is a hundred percent, this is going to work. And then you go down that path and it's like a disaster, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe that's not even the right question. Maybe it's not about, is it going to succeed or not, but should I take the next step? But I, yeah. And so, actually, so, yeah. So how do you, how do you work through that? <clears throat> 
Great question. And I love that you you kind of caught one angle of kind of how to think about this, which is, look, I, I'm not a genie. None of us can predict outcomes. And so I don't promise the outcome. I promise the process that leads to consistently more positive outcomes. But there is no, hey, otherwise, like, hey, there's billions of dollars in all of our bank accounts if you told me that I've cracked the code <laughs> of what to invest in, right? <laughs> right so right. like, and I know you were just, you know, yeah, being yeah. facetious, but like at the end of the day, Here's the reality is uh, it's action over outcome. And if hands are the action, some of the dangers of decision-making, which is exactly where you brought us, it's when we over-index on either head or heart. Notice that the equation is not head or heart equals hands. It's head plus heart equals hands. It's a yes and game. What I have found is when you check in with both head and heart, it covers up a lot of your own blind spots, pitfalls. And again, there is no guarantee of outcome, but there's a guarantee of intention and purpose and awareness in this. Not only think, I don't only think it's a good idea. I feel it's a good idea because here's the reality, Ryan is Every person in the world is probably leaning either heavier to logic or heavier to emotion. Let me use two easy examples, engineers and salespeople. Engineers are going to be very heavy on logic, clearly. That's how they're wired. Nothing wrong with that. Salespeople like me, heavy emotion. Nothing wrong with that, but I think we can both admit if we over-index on logic or over-index on emotion, that can be really dangerous. So that's why head and heart makes the logical person check in with their emotion. It makes the emotional person check in with their logic. That's the beauty. So like using your example, I think you said an investment, great. An investment solely with the head. Hey, everyone's killing it and making money on this. <laughs> but if your heart doesn't give a, you know what about it, like, Maybe you do make some bucks, maybe you don't, but how horrible if you lost money and your heart always knew that it was something you weren't passionate about. But on the flip side, hey, you know, I want to support this cause and it's all from the heart, but I could barely afford my rent and I just wrote a thousand dollar check for these kids. And it, well, I would argue that your head says like, hey, not the smartest idea. Wait till you're in a more comfortable financial position and then- Maybe give more money to this cause. Today is not the day to cut that $1,000 check, hmm. right? So I, I'm using simple examples to hopefully kind of hmm. highlight and illustrate the point of head and heart. I have no guarantee of outcomes. What I have a guarantee of is clarity and confidence that with the information I have right now and my current feelings, my truth, my authenticity, my heart, this is the best decision today. And a green, yellow, red means I'm going to make it faster, not fast. I don't tell people to make massive life decisions overnight. No, my Jerry Maguire leap out of sports where I use the head, heart, hands equation without calling it at the time, the head, heart, hands equation. That took me nine months to pull the trigger, but I was working on it daily to set myself up for a successful process versus most people never would have left. Most people stay stuck. And my process got me to pull a trigger, not fast, but faster 
than I ever would have. That's how that's a helpful clarifier. Cause I, I think uh, going back to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you also saying like, when you think about like the heart, does that also have to do with kind of your own values, your own, you know, when you say Bingo. authenticity, because, Bingo. um, because yeah, it may be, oh, you're going to make a bazillion dollars, but then you go, but, but my value is like, actually, that's not what, that's not my goal right now. Or that's not, like you said, maybe it's investing in something I just don't feel comfortable investing in. I don't want to be part of that. Or I don't, you know, even though it's a good opportunity or whatever. So your values say, no, that's not me or the values of our company or the values of our organization. Um, because a lot of opportunities come along all the time and we could say yes to everything, but you go, but you know what? That thing is not what we're about. We're about something else. So is that, is that kind of a checks and balance? Checks and balance, yes. And your examples were spot on. Let me add one as well. Yes, my head says I can make a bazillion dollars. Cool, smart financial play. And you were saying, ah, but maybe my heart, like maybe it's a product or a service that I don't believe in as an example. Great example. A little different spin on that is every decision you make has consequence and it has trade-offs. So what if, what if? that investment play or leaving your current job to make 10 times the money with a different company. And you're like, hell yeah. Like your head's like, dude, 10X money. Like, of course. Right. And what if that means that you're absent from home and you no longer see your kids grow up and now you can't get those years back? There's a cost. There's a trade-off. Yeah. You have more money, but at what cost? Mm. And so I think about it like the heart when evaluating that 10X salary might say, well, yeah, but honey, I don't travel right now. I'm going to have to travel 300 days a year. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but that's a heart thing. The head is going to say F yes. The heart is like, well, honey, we should talk because there's a lot of planes and trains and automobiles in this scenario. And um, we, we should get ahead of it because it's going to be too hard to stop once we're in. So that would be an example of like your heart should hopefully keep you in bounds. And that doesn't mean don't take the job, but the heart means have that heart-based conversation with your partner, uh, with your kids or whatever, just using that as an example. That's really helpful. I, I joke with people all the time. It's like, yeah, you're going to get a promotion, but nobody, nobody goes, hey, you're going to get a promotion. You're going to work less. You're going to make way more <laughs> money. You, you yeah. know, there's going to be less sacrifice, less responsibility. It's like, that's never happened in the history of the world, right? So you have to right. kind of weigh those decisions and say, yeah, but for me in my life stage, hey, you're a single dude and you don't have a family and responsibilities, like go travel the world. Great. But like for the guy who's got four kids and it's like, that's not going to work. Like I, you know, and maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe you can figure it out. Um, but no, this is really helpful because I think um, going back to your original kind of foundational thesis and idea of the book and is not just, hey, we all make decisions, but like we do need some kind of process, some kind of system, some kind of way of filtering these things, because I think we can, I, I loved your, your analogy. I think that's really helpful of like, we're all wired differently and we're going to lean into head or heart. And because mm-hmm. my fear is always people tend to make very emotional decisions, but sure, you know, or just very logical. Well, obviously a million dollars is a million dollars, but you're like, yeah, but yep. what is it going to cost you? That kind of thing. Yep. Um, having that kind of balance in that rubric is really, really, really helpful. Um, now, uh, I was thinking about my dad, uh, kind of ironically, and my dad used to be a CEO of a, he's actually a CEO, but he's a CEO, was a CEO of a very big aerospace company. And when we were kind of processing after he left that job, um, the one thing he said to me is, Ryan, I never had, uh, I never considered that my day-to-day existence would be just constantly responding to email decisions. 
just, I mean, we'd be on vacation and it's just constant, con- you know, board of directors and he's got 11,000 employees and it, you know, and he's like, I like the work and I like the leadership opportunities and the impact you can make, but, but you just, you didn't have, you weren't ready for the constant decision-making every single second of every day and just everyone needing you for everything. And, And I don't think he was ready for that until he got some help and some coaching and just kind of people that have led big companies and just like, how do I, you know, order my day and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so what I hear you saying, again, from your book, it sounds like this could be a huge gift for people that are, I mean, whether it's just, the minutia of a daily decision, but also those that are leading maybe bigger organizations, uh, groups of people, teams. Um, what is the kind of, what are you hoping that this kind of book from front to end can kind of help in that? Like, what does it kind of feel like, you know, how have you seen, you know, teams go from this to this, or just kind of fatigue decision overload to like actually success health. Like how have you kind of witnessed that as your own? I guess I'm looking for some like good stories. I guess that's kind of the, <laughs> some, some tangible, you know, um, evidences of like this stuff actually works and I've seen it with my own eyes. For sure. So uh, happy to share a story. And, um, before I do, I'll, I'll say that this is a holistic play, like decisions impact every area of your life. And so when I say things like, do I spend my time on X or Y? What human being doesn't need that? Should I be right. in this relationship or not? And I don't just mean romantic right. partner. I mean, you have a relationship with your boss, with your company, with your, like relationship can be however you define relationship. Uh, friends, is this still the right company for me, even though they were 20 years ago? I don't know. Like mm-hmm. use the head, hard hands equation. Sure. Uh, financial, yes. Do I invest or pass? We hit that one. In sales, is this B2B? Is this the right partnership or not? Like, are we aligned, right? What culture, what, all that stuff strategy, A or B, like all these things, what product or service. I think of like a sports analogy of there's MVPs, most valuable players. Use the head, heart, hands equation for your MVDs, your most valuable decisions. So Ryan, you mentioned earlier, 35,000 decisions in a day. There's three categories of those decisions. The first of which is 99% of those 35,000, you're on autopilot. You should probably stay in autopilot. You should not use the head hard hands equation to decide whether to brush your teeth or turn left in the driveway. <laughs> Please just continue to do those <laughs> right. things, okay? Mm-hmm. But then I covered more of those forks in the road and that's like the stress and the anxiety and oh my gosh, what mm-hmm. what what if I make the wrong call? And that's, those are the MVDs. And there's this middle ground, which is kind of like that airline story I shared of like, what's your moment to moment energy attitude? Are you warming rooms up or are you cooling them off? That's not an MVD, but I could argue that if you can compound, like money compounds, compounding interest, what if you were a compounding green light, a compounding warmer of the room, warmer of the Zoom? Man, I I have a feeling that if you compound that for days, weeks, months, years, you're going to start to have better relationships in your life because people are going to like you more. And so like, I think that that category of decision, I didn't focus on it in the book, but I think that's the longer play. A, now people have a go-to process and system for their MVDs. And then B, they could be more aware and intentional in those moment-to-moment things that matter. And it's mindset, mood, energy, how much effort am I going to put into this conversation or this day? Well, Head hard hands equation can help you answer that because a lifelong journey of yellows and reds would just suck. It would suck. And so we need a playbook for how to stop running reds and how to transform the right type of yellow into green. And by the way, when I say right type, 
your heart's not going to change over time. It's just not. You're lying to yourself if you think your heart's going to change. So when it's head on board, heart off board, hard pass, you're going to bleed out. That's worse than a red because now you're going to lose the time along with it. But the heart on board and the head off board, I encourage you to stay in the fight. There could be a self-learning belief to work through. Maybe there's a coach, maybe a therapist, maybe a conversation with your partner. Like there is a way to hopefully get your head to join for the party. So some success stories, because I promise you that, Ryan, and I know we're close to time here, but here's the beauty. Uh, I've used, I've had some significant yellow lights in my life, very personal. Um, one that I'll, I'll share an example on is whether to have a second kid or not. So my wife was a green light. I was a yellow. And instead of, think of the business application of this too. Well, I mean, it's a personal story, but this applies to, imagine you are on a team and about an idea, some of you feel green, some feel yellow, some feel red, but now you can have a healthy conversation about the color instead of attacking them as a person or judging them or saying, well, that, that's how this person thinks. Like, don't make it personal. Make it about the color and explain your color. So when I said, honey, like I'm a yellow because my heart would love to grow our family. But my head is like, I'm on the road so much. Most of this work falls on you. I feel horrible. I have guilt. I have shame. I've like, I, I was very like logical about it, but also like, like human, like this is why I'm not a green light. And these are my honest concerns. And we had a very healthy conversation about it. A lot of empathy, a lot of empathy. And then, you know, a week or two later, we make the final call. And ultimately I said, you know what? You're a strong green. I'm a light yellow you're more intense about this decision. Let's go to your strong green. And I also said, and I don't want this to sound too much like a Hallmark card, but it might. I said, you're the biggest green light. More than this decision, you're my best friend. And I'm not going to lose my best friend. And so I'm not saying we're having a third kid, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we could have a second because you're my green light. And if we're going to be a four-person tribe instead of a three-person tribe, then let's do it. You know, and like, it made it so natural to talk about these things. And when I coach, consult, train this process, that's the biggest needle mover. Greens and reds are about awareness. You want more green, you stop running reds. Cool. Paul's out of the building. You can keep doing that without me. But coaching how to create healthy conversations out of the tough yellows and get some greens out of that. Oh boy, that's powerful. No, I think that's a, that's a healthy, and I, I imagine it probably the way you went about it actually diffused a lot of conflict, a lot of, yeah. I mean, not to say it was an easy conversation, but like you think of family situation, corporate situation, nonprofit, whatever, like, yeah, it's like, Hey, we're coming here going, Hey, this is where we're at. We're being honest about how we feel about these things. Let's talk about it. Let's not, yep. you know, like you said, don't make it personal. I love that. I think that's a really helpful uh, strategy and just uh, way of going about it. Because I think so much it's, we just leap to judgment. We leap to, well, obviously you're not a good father. Obviously you're, you know, this or that, <laughs> but to have an actual tool to say, Hey, we could use this um, in so many different ways in life. Cause everybody makes decisions. You're right. It's like, it's the individual to the corporate, to the community, to the team, to the, you know, um, well, Paul, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I have enjoyed every second of it. And, um, I'm so glad that you had the, the courage and the, uh, strength to write this book. Um, cause I think it's going to help a lot of people and I'm looking forward to sharing this, uh, with the public and getting, getting it into, uh, people's hands. Now, um, this will launch in a few weeks, but what, uh, what's your launch date? Do you have a hard launch date for so uh, yeah, the book? September 26th? Okay. So yeah. So it'll be right 
around the corner when this goes live. So we'll put all the information in the show notes, but um, just as we land the plane, um, tell me, I, I mean, I hate asking this question, but I do ask it to most guests is um, especially when you just wrote a book <laughs> is kind of what's next, what's your you know next goal, next dream, next project. Yeah. And then where can people find you? Absolutely. So where folks can find me and then I'll, I'll share what's next. And I actually do know this. Um, so paulepsteinspeaks.com is the website and everything and anything there related to books, speaking, everything is at paulepsteinspeaks.com and a gift from me to all your listeners, Ryan, confidence quiz. We can't make better decisions faster without unshakable confidence. How cool would it be if you had a confidence score of one to a hundred, you knew exactly where you stood. And that's what a five-minute quiz on my website can do. So on paulepsteinspeaks.com, hit the confidence quiz. You'll get a score of one to 100 and also a resource on the back end for the 12 keys on how you can not only build your confidence, but sustain it. So that's all there. Uh, As far as what's next, whether it's a third book or, or beyond, the 10 things that you need to know in life and they don't teach you in school. So as a dad, I'm very inspired by developing the leaders of tomorrow now. And I've been doing a lot for the leaders of today, business largely. I'm going to slant younger. I'm going to write 10 plus books eventually for younger audiences eventually. And um, I don't know if that's my third book or my fourth book, but like I most certainly am going to dedicate my mission to helping younger people as I get older. Great. Great. And I, I hear a lot of your dad in there. I hear, yeah, you know, he gave his life to that and I can hear it coming through you. Now you have your own kid. It, it does, does something to you for sure. I'm a, I'm a dad of four, so I get it. There you go. Um, well, Paul, this has been fantastic. Go check out Paul's website. Uh, we'll put that all in the show notes, go get his book, uh, have your life impacted. Keep doing what you're doing, Paul. I know you helped a lot of people today. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Ryan. All the best. Well, there you have it, my friends, Paul Epstein, go check out his book, Better Decisions Faster. Uh, You're going to love it. And I really appreciate his thoughts, his ideas about team building, about culture, about making decisions. Uh, I think we all kind of feel that sometimes, right? We we just feel like there's so many things that need to be done and so many uh, ways in which uh, we aren't sure what's the next step, what's the next path, what's what do I need to give my time and energy to, what do I not, uh, what do I say yes to, what do I say no to, and I, I think uh, some of Paul's ideas are really, really helpful, um, that we don't have to get overwhelmed by it, uh, we don't have to be uh, worried about it, um, but we make the best decisions we can and, and what fits us and our values, and and we move on to the next next thing. So, so check out Paul Epstein. All his information will be in the show notes. You can get his books and uh, find out what he's up to and get connected with him as well. I also just want to remind you, hey, one of the best ways to share the show and share the podcast, The Art of Paid Intention, is word of mouth. Tell a friend, pass it along, share it on social media. Um, also, if you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast, that also helps a ton. And another great way to, to stay in the loop is get uh, signed up for the newsletter on the Substack. So ryanjpelton.substack.com. You can get on the newsletter. Uh, I send out updates, all the things that are going on, some uh, interesting links and things I'm paying attention to. And uh, you can, can stay in the loop on that. And there's also a, um, a paid option as well. 
And so we've had some people that have signed up for the paid option, some uh, kind of VIP content and extra stuff um, going on there. So you can check out that if you're interested, support the show, support the work. Um, so, so thanks for coming along for another episode. Thanks for paying attention. Um, there's so many things to pay attention to these days and everybody's vying for our attention and we want to pay to pay attention to what matters most. Um, and, and sometimes it's just making it simple and, and, and shrinking it down to, uh, our family, our relationships, our faith, uh, people around us, uh, our work, all those are good things. And, uh, so hopefully this show can continue to be a help as we share different stories and different perspectives and different ways of paying attention to, to what matters. And so thanks Paul for coming on the show. Thanks for following along for the ride. And before I go, I got one more important thing to say, go make some great art with your life. And I will talk to you real, real soon.